DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. Nothing, nothing. I'm gonna fly higher. I'm gonna fly higher. Higher. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. I'm Cece Huffman, editor at EarFluence, and today we're going to give you something a little bit different. As I listen to this podcast, themes tend to pop up. DT and his guests talk about leadership, entrepreneurship, investing, and just handling the stress and chaos of normal life. But as you well know, 2020 has been anything but normal. In March, COVID-19 put us all on a two-week pause, a pause that has now lasted 33 weeks with no end in sight. In May, the murder of George Floyd and subsequent protests throughout the United States amplified the systemic racism our country has faced since its inception. This episode is a compilation of some of the conversations that DT has had with his guests about racism, white privilege, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Even before all the social unrest, this was a major topic. And today we're going to take you through some of DT's conversations before and during that unrest, starting with Sonia Hobson, CEO of Higher Strategies. Give me some of your thoughts on diversity and inclusion and how that can be impacted in a positive way from the position that you're in. Okay. Um, well, I'll talk about it from, from two different um, perspectives, because like you mentioned or indicated, it's definitely a challenge or could be a challenge for someone like myself to be in a male-dominated industry, and I am a Black female. And I just want individuals to know that you can't let um, things that are a challenge to you stop you or uh, make you afraid of getting to a certain level of success, because that could have been the case for me, um, quite honestly, because when I got into construction, I had a client tell me um, directly to my face that he didn't think he wanted to work with me because I was a woman and I was black. And I could have easily taken offense because it was somewhat offensive comment. That could have stopped the conversation, but for me, I wanted to dig deeper. So him making that comment 
brought up more conversation because I wanted to understand why you feel that way. So instead of storming out of the, the office and saying, I can't believe this, I don't even want to talk to you. I sat down and I said, help me understand that. Why do you, did you not want to talk to me? Because I'm a woman and because I'm black. And he said, well, to be honest with you, I haven't worked with any other black women, um, especially not in construction. And he said, a lot of the guys who come in here to talk up with us about providing some temporary staffing or talent to our team, they're men. So that's what I'm used to. Um, so we had some conversation, some honest conversation around that. I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell me what your needs are? I will assist you and then you can gauge whether you want to work with me any further. Either you think that I can be a support to your company or not. Um, so he said, okay, that's fine. Why don't you bring me in this amount of people on this next project and we'll see how it goes. Well, I ended up staffing his entire project. Staffed his entire project. We did a very good job for him. We're still friends today. He still does business with us, but that was an opportunity for him to change his perspective and an opportunity for me not to be afraid just because I didn't come in the form that this gentleman expected me to come in. It's clear that being a black woman in business is hard, but Ashlyn Sanders, creator of the med tech company Neurovice, revealed that being a black woman starting a business is even harder. I felt like because of my demographic, being a young woman of color, that that was a barrier. And so I then pivoted to trying to raise dilutive sources of capital and was unsuccessful in doing that as well. So I had to become creative. And I started writing people that had access to capital and resources that I didn't, and that I felt I could convince by way of presenting a very viable business plan, but also showing how my products could improve quality of life for millions of people. And that's what led me to Charles. That Charles is Charles Barkley. And Ashlyn ended up with the investment she needed to get going. These next two clips are about white privilege. And both interviews were done before social unrest even became a hot topic of conversation. First, we hear from Jen Hoverstad, Director of Marketing and Engagement for the Yao Cancer Fund. And then from Akinwo Garrett, Director of Global Strategic Alliances at Lenovo. Oh my gosh, yes. And I am so glad to see, DT, that that y'all are doing that because not enough businesses are doing it. And I have had some real impactful conversations. The first time that that I realized my own personal privilege was 2000, let's see, I had my baby in 2014. It would have been early 2015. I was working for the state government and I was running the HR department for the de- uh, Department of Employment Security. And the woman who worked alongside me, her name's Stephanie. She is one of the most amazing people I have ever met. And she, uh, probably like mid 40s, African American woman. We had some amazing conversations, very open and honest. I mean, me having just turned 30 and really not seeing the world, and, and her having been in state government for 20 plus years. And one day we got to talking, and she randomly just asked me, she said, Tell me, what do you wear when you go to the mall? I was like, well, what kind of question is this? I wear gym shorts and a t-shirt and, you know, flip-flops or like tennis shoes. Like, why are you asking me this? She's like, do you want to know what I wear when I go to the mall? I was like, sure. What do you wear? She said, I make sure that I look my best. I have my hair fixed. I have on nice clothes. And I want to make sure that no one thinks I'm stealing from them when I go into their store. And I was like, Stephanie, you're successful. Like, here, here we are with 600 employees. Really? That you have to think about just going to the mall? And she's like, she's like, I, I know. She's like, but I, I want to 
I want to open your mind to like, this is my reality. And this is what I'm training my daughter to, to grow up into her reality. And that, that moment, gosh, it's still, it feels like it's yesterday because that moment had such an impact uh, on the way that, that I view my interactions with people, how, how I, I choose to treat them, how I don't, um, who I choose to bring around a table because I, I think what we see right now in our, our communities and our societies is that it's, it's people that uh, have too many friends that look just like them and think just like them, that, where they, they miss these incredible stories like I had with Stephanie. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about our, our society? Uh, do, you want, do you want the PC answer? Or you want the, the raw? Nah, man, let's, uh, let's just kick it, man. We I just kick it. Answer. <laughs> All right. So I grew up, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, you know, we, we, we practice, you know, spirituality, a faith, a way of life that was very different than most quote unquote black families in America. My mom was, you know, till the day she died, my mom is still alive, but till, till the day that Malcolm X's wife passed away, they were best of friends, right? I used to hang out with Malcolm X's grandson. He used to hang out at my house and we would do, it was back when I was a child, we would do sleepovers and you know, Mumi Abu-Jamal, who is a political prisoner on death row, is a very close family friend of my mother's from his days as a journalist. Um, so I grew up in a very pan-Africanist, social justice-focused family. And so for me, that's always had an impact on the way I viewed and perceived the world, right? And oddly enough, a very pan-Africanist family would send their, their youngest son to a non-pan-Africanist, to non-pan-Africanist institutions, Right. right. To my, to, I think, really helped me from a confidence perspective in realizing who I was and not trying, not going to seek definition, but having already been defined, existing in my and standing in my own truth and my own authenticity in those environments. So I didn't go to those environments seeking to find myself. I knew who I was, and I knew what I needed to do, and so that gave me, you know, shoulder that responsibility and to feel that empowerment, right? And to, and, and, and to empower others, right? And so to answer your question, and I, I lay all that as groundwork because if I had the magic wand, you know what I would do? I would undo the informal institution of white privilege. I would erase white privilege. To me, there will never be equity in this world. There will never be full diversity and inclusion until white privilege is non-existent. And, and define, and give me an example of, because a good friend of mine, my mentor and, and good friend, Grant Willard, middle-aged white guy, lifted me up and mentored me. And we've, we've worked and been friends for years. We did a podcast on Ask a White Guy, Ask a Black Guy. And so we got mm -hmm. into it. So your, your conversation, we're, we're all about controversy. But we, we're, we're about to release some, some, some good stuff. But anyway, okay. we talked about white privilege. So define, define white privilege, your perspective. Having a liberty and advantage simply because you're white. Simply because you're white, right? The ability to walk around, I, I, again, I went to predominantly white, white institutions my entire life. Some of my best friends are white. Most of my best friends are white, outside of my family. My family, they're my best friends, right? My, my brothers and my nieces and my nephews. Those, that, that, that's, I grew up in a household where like, everybody else was an associate and those were your best friends. But to put it in normal American context, most of my best friends are white. But the reason why I come back to that is because there's a certain privilege 
and a certain allowance and a certain freedom and liberty to, to be who you are when you are white that's not afforded every other race. And so literally, when you think about it, and you boil it down to its very basic compound, it is literally the shade of your skin and a, a, a phenotypical and genotypical construct that defines access, privilege, opportunity, comfort, success, failure. Security. Security that's literally boiled down to something that nobody controls. So, to who's the comedian that did the race lottery? Um, Dave Chappelle. But <laughs> yeah, you yeah. literally, <laughs> you literally hit the genetic jackpot. There are things that that you are afforded just because of the color of your skin that literally create trauma, anxiety, and all the types of mental disorders in other communities. Like the ability to walk down the street at midnight or run outside at midnight and not get pulled over by a cop because they think you're robbing somebody or you're running from something simply because of the color of your skin, to me, is, it's, it's mind-blowing. And I think it shows up, it shows up not only in just kind of the germane, you know, running down the street at midnight because you want to do a late night run because it's not 90 degrees outside in the summertime, it also shows up in the, in the boardroom, right? Where you're afforded opportunities, you might be underqualified, Versus somebody who's overqualified and you just get the opportunity because of the color of your skin, right? And so there's a privilege that's afforded to them that is, to me, it's, it's until, you, until you undo that, it, it'll never be equal, right? And to some extent, I can argue that equality is, is, is a total myth, right? You know, some people are short, some people are tall, some people are pretty, some people are ugly. Like, it just is what it is, right? But until, until you deconstruct this, this notion of white privilege, I think it's going to be hard for us as a society to really, really achieve those things that folks like you, Don, and, and, and you, Jason, and that diversity and inclusion and, 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 and equality and access. It's going to be really, really hard to achieve those things unless you're willing to surrender that quote-unquote advantage. But we don't have a magic wand to make our world equitable. And we saw our inequalities on full display with the murder of George Floyd. During the upheaval, DT talked to many influential leaders on what they were doing, who they were listening to, and how they are working towards equity within their own circles. Here's UNC women's soccer head coach, Anson Dorrance. Systemic uh, uh, racism in this country is a matter of public record, and not within one institution or another, within all of them. I mean, it's so absolutely common and pervasive, but hopefully this can be an opportunity for us to change. And obviously, again, you can spin what you're watching. You can spin it. And all of a sudden make this uh, like uh, there is already a race war and uh, let's uh, shoot the looters. And I mean, we can do this in all kinds of negative ways, uh, but we can also do it in other ways. And I listened to various extraordinary speakers. My favorite one following the event was uh, Killer Mike in Atlanta. And holy cow, was his speech spot on. You could feel his emotion while he was speaking you could feel that this wasn't for him a political moment because he was being ripped to shreds. And so often in these moments, obviously, it's all spun into some sort of political narrative. And you can listen to this wonderful man speak about it. And you can actually feel his soul being torn in half while he is trying to address it. And then the things he said about it and the way he said we've got to come out of this was extraordinarily positive. Yeah. in a Martin Luther King way. I mean, it's extraordinarily uh, positive. 
and then uh, to hear Obama speak a couple days ago about it, all of us, when we were young, were, we were hopeful. And on that call with my kids the last Monday, I spoke about what we fought against as kids. When I was in college, we were fighting against the Vietnam War. And as a second semester freshman at UNC, uh, the Kent State shootings took place. And 13 students were basically shot by the National Guard. Four of them died. And so we fought as students. We actually shut the university down at UNC. And of course, a lot of us were shutting it down because we enjoyed the entertainment value of not having exams. But of course, uh, there were some students, and I don't want to pretend to be self-righteously among them because I weren't, but those students really knew what was going on. We had an opportunity to make a statement towards our government that could change our world in a positive way. And obviously, that's what's happened. Well, uh, when Obama was speaking, he basically said, you know what, uh, now we have to look to our youth. You guys are going to lead us out of this in a new direction, and this can be what you guys do. And obviously, if you look at the youth on climate change, uh, they are the leaders. I mean, this is an opportunity for uh, Brianna Pinto, Rachel Jones, to set the tone in our environment within our team at UNC. So let's not pretend that all of a sudden we can command the town or the county or the state or the country. And this, of course, we can't. But where can we start? We can start within our own mini culture. And so that's uh, where all of us have to begin. And I genuinely feel that I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because I've seen every younger generation have their impact on the different issues. Kendrell Felder is the global head of centralized services at Cisco. He leads a team of hundreds and he's very successful. But in one of the most impactful conversations on the Donald Thompson podcast, after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, he realized once again that some people view him as just another black man. When you think about, let's, let's take it macro a little bit and look at our country and the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, and, and, and. Right. Right? Yeah. How has that affected you? How have you dealt with those emotions and those ups and downs? What are, what are some of the things you've been thinking and feeling in this moment um, that, you know, this, this racial moment, if you will, uh, in our country? Oh, man, I, I don't think we have enough time to, to go through the, the full answer there. But in reality, DT, th there are several emotions associated with it. I, I think the first one you get, or I get at least, is hurt, right? That the sadness that comes with seeing people that look like us get killed for, for no good reason, right? Regardless of what, not regardless, I, I won't say that. Even if they were in the wrong in the situations that they were in, death wasn't the penalty for those crimes, right? And so to, to see people get unjustly punished the way that they have on video and no justice be served for it, there's a lot of hurt that comes with that. The, the second feeling that, that comes shortly thereafter, maybe a, a second or two, is, uh, is anger, right? Because once the sadness subsides, it is, well, why, why would people feel that way towards me that have never even had a conversation with me? They've never taken the time to get to know me. They are basing their thoughts of what I am on my skin color, right? And the anger that I get out of that, because I know, and, and not even being arrogant, I know 
individually, I probably accomplished more than 99% of people. But, but if someone looked at me on the street in basketball shorts and Jordans, they'd assume I was a thug. You know, and there's, that makes me angry because I work hard like everybody else, but I have to, I have to I'm, I'm guilty until proven innocent in a lot of ways. It's hard enough to process the deadly racism on your own, much less when you have a company of employees looking to you for leadership, like IBM's Timothy Humphrey. As an African-American executive, uh, an entrepreneur myself, and, and your very strong career and leadership in, in our community at IBM, we can't ignore some of the things that are going on in our society from a racial unrest standpoint. When, when this started, the unrest started this year in the middle of the pandemic around the awful murders that occurred, our first focus was our employees. That, that causes stress. It causes emotion. It causes just tremendous angst. <laughs> so our first, our first priority was on the employees. And uh, me, along with several other senior leaders in the company, spent time connecting with all of our employees and ensuring that they're okay. Letting them know that it's okay for them to show up as their full authentic self to work, which is something that, you know, quite frankly, people think might be taken for granted, but sometimes you need to express it. So we, we focused a lot on the employee. We also wanted to make sure we had the resources available to give people help if they need it. So that was, that was number one, focus on the employee, focus on the people. I always say any company, at the end of the day, you can have great technology, you can have great products, offerings, services, whatever it is. If your people aren't engaged, you've got problems. So we focus on the people. Gary Salamito, CEO of the North Carolina Chamber, wanted to focus on the people as well. He wanted to help his friends and colleagues feel supported and safe. But as a white man, he was struggling a little bit with how exactly to do that. You just said there's a, there's a white guilt out there now that's real. Or, or and that, help me with that a little bit, because I, to be honest with you, I'm 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 feeling it. Yeah, that I, like so we don't want to dance around that. Like it's it's a big deal. I'm I'm talking to a lot of folks that in the past when they've seen videos, the the George Floyd video was so egregiously foul so radically horrendous, it could not be ignored. Mm -hmm. Some of the other videos or other instances in the country have been excused away or spun. Well, this person's background, what was this person resisting? There was no video, so should they be believed, right? This is blue lives matter, black lives also matter, all lives matter. There was all this narrative noise about a discussion on the treatment of African-Americans by the police and in particular African-American males, right? So now that we have had a George, the George Floyd moment with death on live television, basically, right? That is now globally pulling back the covers on the real race issues that we have in our country, the reality of it. The white guilt is now risen because people are going, I have not been paying attention to this for 10 years, for 20 years. I've been living my life. My life's been amazing. I've not had to deal with this and it's real. So now how do we deal with that? 
we need to allow all of our employees that are impacted to have space to discuss and learn. And one of the things I'm finding from executives that are, that are, that are white, people in my own company that, that are white, that, are, that we're speaking on this, is they wanna know specific things they can do to activate. Because they're mad too. Because everybody wants to be proud of their country. And right now, there's a lot of Americans that are not proud of their country. And they want to be. And they want to, you can't really make up for the past, you can build a future, right? And so I like to give people things they can do to help build a future. For example, right, there's a friend of mine that runs an organization called 100 Black Men, and they do mentoring and grow the educational opportunities for, for youth organizations, right? Donate to that organization. What are some seminars and training that people can do, go to? So I wanna create opportunities of activation to turn that guilt into a force for good and not allowing this moment, right, to dissipate when we have the next media cycle that's on something else. And so I acknowledge it with people that talk with me about it, but I give them a charge and a charter to say, this is something that could be helpful. This is how you can use your voice. For Joe Bunn from Bunn DJ Company, he had never talked about religion or politics on social media. He just didn't want to get into that conversation at all. But with the Black Lives Matter movement, it was never about politics. It was the right thing to do. That article was interesting because the, the headline almost made it seem like we had been ostracized for speaking up, these people in the wedding industry. And in fact, my picture, if you saw the article, uh, was in it because there were two young ladies, I think, that were mentioned in the article. An original picture that came out in the digital edition before the Sunday paper was them. And then the next thing I know, I get a phone call and they said, oh, they thought it was bad for business, blah, blah, blah. I was like, you can put my picture in the New York Times right now. Right now. And they were like, it's going to be color and it's going to be big. And I was like, dude, put me in the paper. Like, I want, I want, I want to be seen and I want to be heard. Put my picture in there. So sure enough, you know, the paper comes out on Sunday and you open up that section and there I am. And, but I guess my point is, you know, Number one, if it had affected business, man, I hate to be so callous. I don't care. You know what I mean? Because I, I was very select with my words. I was very specific about what I said. I thought a long time before I made the post, you know, not a long time, but, you know, uh, within 48 hours after things really started to escalate, you know, after the, after the George, George Floyd incident. And she didn't really, she asked me this question, but I didn't really get to convey it. So I'll convey it on your show. Like I honestly felt like an internal pull, like somebody had tied a, a rope around my waist and was pulling me into this conversation or into this movement, into this, into action. And as soon as I made the post, it, it just, it exploded, but in a good way. You know what I mean? And again, if anybody had anything negative to say, they kept it to themselves or they just unfollowed me. And again, I didn't really care. So 2020. Well, there's been a lot of serious conversation to be had throughout 2020, but I don't want you to get crushed under the weight of our world. So I'm going to leave you with a funny story from Don's old friend, TLS agency's Cicero Leak. Can I share the story how you left me out outside the stable center 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we bought the tickets. Yeah, we got those tickets, and you left me outside the stadium. <laughs> my ticket didn't say the same thing as yours. <laughs> I was mad as hell. <laughs> Hey, look, so me, Don, and Tuck, so Don knows Tuck, too, because Tuck came, me and Don went in L.A. for some meetings, and um, we had to meet with Own and uh, Magical Elves or whatever, and so Don, I'm like, Don, I'm going to meet with my boy Courtney, you know, where's ESPN, we're going to go catch a Clippers game, so Don was like, okay, cool, I'll go with you, I was like, all right, cool, so we get to the venue, and we buy tickets from Scalper. <laughs> <laughs> so Scalping is, is not illegal in the state of North Carolina. It's legal, you know what I'm saying? But it is in, right. in California. So I didn't know that, you know what I'm saying? But the guy was acting all shady. So I'm like, he was like, come around the corner and buy the tickets. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, why? You know what I'm saying? Like. In North Carolina, you can do the shit right in front of the venue and then you walk right in. You know what I'm saying? Right. The dude was acting all shady and shit. So finally, you know, we get the tickets and we're about to go in. So the guy, he scans Don's ticket, he scans Tuck's ticket, and he scans my ticket. He's like, no, you can't walk in with them. <laughs> you got to go to the other gate. Your, ticket, your seat is way up in the rafters. <laughs> <laughs> hey look, and that game just look like all right, well I'll see you later. I was so mad. Hey. Hey, but hey, you look. supported that black business. Hey look. You know what I'm saying? Oh, but you know, but Trish, you know how we do. I was like, okay, I'm gonna fix y'all motherfuckers. I was like, I'm gonna find y'all. <laughs> they were all they were where were you at? In some restaurant? You're in a VIP restaurant. In a VIP, yeah. <laughs> Eating and shit. You know what I'm saying? Watching the game with the beat up, relaxing. And I was like, bro, that was the first time I ever I put my head down and just walked. I just so somehow I got up there. And I don't know how. It's like somebody helped me. I don't even know how I got up there without having oh that ticket. Oh, my God. Like I, put my, I put my head down. I was just like, and like I was the head of security of <laughs> and got and got up there. Oh, and, was, and they have been eating and, and relaxing and, and, you know what I'm saying? Like, they didn't even know each other. And they were just eating and relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> they look like uh, old, old buddies eating and drinking and relaxing. Well, I'm trying to figure out how to get up there. I'm crying. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. One more. So we go, we go to the meeting at home, right? And so <laughs> we go sit in the offices, and the client is sitting there. I'm sitting there. Cicero's sitting there. And Oprah's team is late. They're like yeah. 20 minutes late. Like, yeah. And I'm looking at my watch, and I'm a business guy, right? And I'm, I'm a little big shot, right? So I'm like, they're late. What the? Cicero, what the hell is going on, Cicero? <laughs> They're 20 minutes late. Cicero looks at me and goes, hey, man, in North Carolina, you matter. We're in L.A. <laughs> he said, we're in L.A., and nobody gives a shit about you in L.A. <laughs> I'm like, Don, chill, man. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> 
It is what it is. Yeah, oh my god! I was like, I said, I said that makes sense. <laughs> oh my gosh, man! I, yeah, I haven't that was, about that, man. No, nah, that was a crazy. That was a crazy trip. And that's it for this special edition of the Donald Thompson Podcast. Don will be back to talk with you next week, but until then, you can visit donaldthompson.com. This episode was edited and produced by me, Cece Huffman, for EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Donald Thompson Podcast. <laughs>